Welcome to another episode of the Father Ted Talk, broadcast here at the National Shrine of St. Elizabeth Ann Seton in Emmitsburg, Maryland. We've got some big news at the Seton Shrine. In this 200th year, we have some very special artifacts from Mother Seton coming to Emmitsburg, including her original bonnet, a christening gown she sewed for her daughter, and a lot more. A special exhibit is coming this summer where you can see these treasured relics on display. Now here's Father Ted. As we draw closer to the great celebration of the passion and resurrection of our Lord, the readings from the Mass will always be focusing upon this particular subject or upon those events that were leading up to it. But if we look at today's Gospel, we might be hard-pressed to find an immediate reference to the Passion. You know, the cross is not mentioned, suffering isn't mentioned either. Like, there's not a lot of indications immediately apparent that Jesus is talking about his Passion, Death, and Resurrection here. But it is all contained there. This entire Gospel is a prophecy about his own Passion and about our need to also carry a cross in life. It begins when these Greeks come to Jesus and they tell Philip they want to see Jesus. And then when Jesus gets wind of this, when they tell him that these Greeks want to see you, he has this very dramatic statement, this very dramatic response. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, I'm First of all, this is a very pivotal moment in the Gospel of John, because up to this point, Jesus has been saying, my hour is not yet here. Just think of the wedding feast at Cana. My hour has not yet come. And he says the same thing to the Samaritan woman in chapter 4. He says the same thing to the Jews in the temple in chapter 5. The reason they can't arrest him in chapter 7 is because his hour has not yet come. But here... In the 12th chapter, the hour has come. This is the second half of the Gospel. The tale of the glorification of Jesus through his passion. But we're sort of struck by the fact that it doesn't seem to be very connected to the, to the Greeks. You know, what is it about the Greeks trying to see him that makes, that prompts, that is the catalyst for this dramatic response? It seems rather peculiar. But by seeing the Greeks coming to him, he's seeing the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Messiah. Because Isaiah said that all mankind shall come to worship before God. And again, Isaiah said, the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, these will be brought to the holy mountain and make them joyful in the, his house of prayer. For God's house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. He had come for everybody. He had not come for just the Jews. He is called the Savior of the world for a reason, not the Savior of the Jews. For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son, so that all who believe in Him, so that all who believe in Him might not perish. There is a universality to the salvific work of our Lord. And right before this gospel passage, we read how the Pharisees were complaining that everybody is going after him. And at the end of today's gospel passage, he says, When I am lifted up, I will draw everyone to myself. 
salvation was something universal. And so the, these Greek Gentiles that were hastening to see him, they were the beginning of the conversion of all non-Jewish nations. And that's why his passion is at hand, because they will not be reconciled to him. They cannot convert. The Jews and the Greeks cannot become one nation, one family, except through the blood of Christ. It is the sacrifice of Christ on the cross that breaks down the barriers that divided Jews from Gentiles so that all could be one in the family of God. But then Christ goes on to explain why he needed to do this. Like, why does he have to shed his blood for the salvation of anybody? Why is the cross a part of this plan of God? And when, when, God, when Jesus is explaining to people of a Jewish background why he has to go to the cross, he uses scripture passages. He references the Old Testament. So if you remember the account of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, our Lord appears to them in disguise, and he explains to them why it was necessary that the Son of Man should suffer and die using Moses and the prophets. And the evangelists also use this technique. When they're writing their gospel to Jewish converts, they cite the Psalms as prophecies of our Lord's Passion, as well as the book of Isaiah has a reference to the suffering servant that they talk about a lot. So the Jews were showed that Jesus had to suffer by referencing the Old Testament. But the Gentiles didn't have the Old Testament. Greeks didn't know the prophecies from the Old Testament. And so when explaining to these Greek Gentiles, our Lord decided to instead use an example from nature. He said that, Amen, amen, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains just a grain of wheat, but if it dies, it produces much fruit. A grain of wheat has to die. Now, we know that grains of wheat or seeds of plants don't actually die when they have to sprout. It was a common understanding in first century Palestine, and so our Lord utilized it. Just as a grain of wheat has to die, he would have to die in order to give life. And if you think about it, it does actually make some sense, because what the seed has to go through is very similar to what to, is very similar to death. You know, if the, if the seed is above ground, it's, it's not going to give fruit, it's not going to sprout. But once you throw it into the cold, dark ground and you bury it like in a tomb, then it will sprout. And as it sprouts, it is breaking itself open, it is cracking the shell, it is being the seed is being destroyed in order to give way to the plants. And that's what is going to happen to our Lord. He is going to be broken, open, cracked on the cross in order that life might come from the wood of the cross. So he is like the seed that has come down from heaven to bring life. Now, it's, in Christ's case, it's not something which is strictly necessary. We very often say he had to die on the cross. It was necessary that he suffer. Scripture uses that same language. Now, God is not required to do anything he doesn't want to do. He could have saved the world by snapping his fingers. But it was necessary insofar as it was the best way to save the world in order to bring us to faith in him and to love him, this was the ideal manner of saving us. And Satan recognized this. The devil saw this, the cross, particularly as a threat. 
not just because of the of what would happen as a result of the cross, the redemption, but he was always trying to tempt Jesus away from the cross. Starting with the temptations in the desert, it's very often interpreted that what Satan was trying to do in the desert was trying to get Jesus away from the cross. He was proposing alternative ways of saving the world to Jesus Christ. And these temptations of Satan in the desert are going to be reiterated at the foot of the cross by the scribes and the high priest who taunt Jesus, saying, if you come down, we'll believe you. And the unrepentant thief as well said, if you are the Son of God, prove it and come down from the cross. Save yourself and us too. And Jesus called Peter Satan when he tried to dissuade him from going to the cross. So the devil does not want our Lord to save the world by means of the cross. But why is this the best way to save the world? Why is this the ideal manner of redeeming mankind? Well, first of all, because when we see Christ crucified, we can grasp in a tangible way the extent of his love for us. Because talk is cheap. Saying I love you is easily done. Love is demonstrated by works more than words, says St. Ignatius. And the greatest work of love is that of suffering. Because you cannot have invincible love, unbreakable concern for the other person, without being willing to lay down your life for them. And so Padre Pio said you can measure love based upon the amount that somebody is willing to suffer for you. And nobody suffered as much as Christ on the cross. And so there is no love greater than he who laid down his life for us. And in doing so, in demonstrating his love for us, he is trying to elicit from us, to draw out from us a corresponding act of love. Because it's great that he loves us. That's a fact. That's a guarantee. That's, there's no difficulty about that. The problem that God had to overcome with the cross was getting us to love him. That's where we tend to fall short. There's always the love from on high down to us below. The problem is we don't always correspond. And so the love, and so the cross is supposed to be dragging out of our cold hearts an act of love, an act of gratitude, a response to that immense love which he shows us by dying for us. But the second reason why he decided to die on the cross was to give us an example of what we would have to do. Because it's not possible to be a follower of Christ without carrying a cross. It's the condition that he gives over and over again in the, in the Gospels. If you would be my disciple, deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. And when his passion draws near in today's Gospel, he reiterates it in different way. He says today in the Gospel, Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will preserve it for eternal life. Now, you might say that, well, okay, but Christianity is a religion of love. And you're right, Christianity is a religion of love. But then somebody could say, it's not a religion about the cross. And you're wrong. It is a religion of the cross. You cannot separate love from the cross. The two are always going to be coming together if the love is in fact authentic. Single people have to love by laying down their lives 
for the people they serve. Married people have to love each other and their families by laying down their lives for the ones they look after, for their spouses as well. Consecrated, consecrated religious and priests have to lay down their lives for the church, the people of God. One of the primary reasons why there is so little love in the world is because of the fear of suffering. We want to be safe. We want to be comfortable. We want to be taken care of. We don't want to be hurt. And you cannot live life that way and love. Because love is risky. Love is dangerous. Love is something which is going to end up getting you hurt. C.S. Lewis talked about this. He said, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give your heart to no one. Keep it closed up in the depths of your, of the depths of your soul, he says, and it will petrify there. It'll be safe, but it will be like a rock. So to love, we must be willing to suffer. Now, this can be kind of intimidating because we all love talking about love, but we don't like talking about the condition of love. But St. Louis de Montfort also says, you know, don't be afraid of this. This is not the, end of the, your, not the end of the world. This is not as bad as it sometimes can seem. He says, if you suffer or make sacrifices in the right way, the cross will give you wings, as it were, to lift you to heaven. It will become your ship's mast, bringing you smoothly and easily to the harbor of salvation. Indeed, brethren, the true earthly paradise, so not just is this going to take you up to heaven, says Louis de Montfort, but the true earthly paradise is found in suffering and making sacrifices for Christ. The joy that comes from the cross is greater than that of the joy of a trader who becomes a millionaire or a conqueror who wins a battle. And he concludes by saying, imagine the greatest joy that can be experienced on earth and then realize that the happiness of the one who bears his sufferings in the right way surpasses all of them. Do not be afraid. The cross hurts. Love hurts. But the only way to happiness is through love and the only way to love is by carrying the cross. So today as we come close to the end of our Lenten journey, let us thank Jesus Christ for having saved us in this most excellent way imaginable, the best way that God could think of, despite what it cost him. And we can ask ourselves, what attitude do I have when the cross comes into my life? Am I saddened, depressed by it, discouraged by the fact that I have a cross? Or do I see it as the ladder that God has given me to climb up to heaven and to find happiness even in this life? We ask the Blessed Virgin Mary for that grace, that she might pray for us, that we might have that grace to love our crosses so that we might find ourselves where Christ is.